coming up, a fascinating conversation about God and modern art and Christian faith with distinguished artist Bruce Herman. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Believe it or not, the Upwards podcast is celebrating with this episode its one-year anniversary. In the first year, we've learned a lot behind the scenes. We've published 38 episodes. We've received thousands of downloads and encouraging feedback, both verbally and written, about the podcast. We know, based on the data we can see of our audience, that many of you are in Wisconsin or near Madison, but almost just as many of you are outside the state of Wisconsin. The podcast has been downloaded in more than a dozen countries, actually more like 15 or 16 countries. So thank you for listening and for supporting our work at Upper House and our venture into the crowded space of podcasting. I'm delighted to bring you yet another conversation to come out of our September arts events in conjunction with the publication of a new collected volume. That volume is co-edited by Upper House's associate director, Cam Anderson, and it's called God in the Modern Wing, Viewing Art with Eyes of Faith, published by InterVarsity Academic Press and co-edited with G. Walter Hansen. One of our events at Upper House for that book launch was a talk by Bruce Herman, one of the contributors to the volume and a prominent Christian modern artist. Bruce Herman is a painter, speaker, and curator whose art has been shown nationally and internationally, all the way to Italy and England and Japan and Hong Kong. His work is in many public collections, including the Vatican Museums in Rome, Cincinnati Museum of Fine Arts, and the Hammer Museum in L.A., His art and writings have been published in print and online journals, and he holds the Lothlorien Distinguished Chair in Fine Arts at Gordon College in Massachusetts. And his conversation here is with a dialogue partner, Bobby Gross, who's the Vice President at InterVarsity for Graduate and Faculty Ministries. And Bobby is also the author of Living in the Creation Year, Time to Inhabit the Story of God from InterVarsity Press. So this conversation between Bruce and Bobby is a flavor of the topics and insights that Bruce brought for his whole time when he visited Madison. And that includes a longer talk he gave at one of the evenings that will be linked to in the show notes if you're interested in his deeper uh, or more streamlined discussion of modern art and Christian faith. So with that, here is a conversation between two longtime friends and two people who are thinking deeply about the intersection of art and faith and God, and particularly modern art. So here's an Upwards conversation with Bobby Gross and Bruce Herman. Bruce Herman, it's a delight to host this conversation with you on behalf of Upper House's Upwards podcast. I've appreciated our friendship. And I appreciated being part of the occasion last night. So welcome to this podcast. Well, thanks. Good to be here with you. 
So we're here in Madison, Wisconsin, and there was a two-day event, lunchtime program yesterday evening, where you were the keynote speaker, and there's a workshop this morning, all around the launch of a new book, God in the Modern Wing. Can you say a little bit about the book and the occasion? It's the brain and heart child of Cameron Anderson and Walter Hansen, uh, who are also friends, and uh, there are many times of talking about God and modern art. But then uh, it, the occasion of the book is a series of talks that were invited to Fourth Presbyterian Church in downtown Chicago, which is about a mile from the Art Institute of Chicago, which has... Which the, is the great art museum great in the art city. Museum. And it's a world-class art museum, and it has a world-class modern art collection in the modern wing. And uh, Walter talks about, it's about a mile, and he would go to church on Sunday morning and worship God, and then he would arm-in-arm with his wife, Darlene. Who's an artist, I understand. Uh, They would walk across the bridge of the Chicago River and then down to uh, Art Institute and have lunch at Terzo Piano in uh, Renzo Piano's new wing. And Renzo Piano was the architect, The architect, yes. Um, The modern wing. And they would just feast on modern art. And Walter, who was initially kind of a skeptic of modern art and a little bit off, put off by it because for some obvious reasons, um, was converted to love modern art. Interesting. Over the course of some years there. And uh, then he talked to Cam uh, and to a bunch of us and said, let's, let's start spreading this feast around. And so um, his pastor uh, there at Fourth Pres um, in Chicago agreed to host uh, a series of lectures over a course of a couple of years, and uh, that became known as God in the Modern Wing. And it was each of us who were speakers in that series were then invited to contribute a chapter to the book. And uh, that's pretty much the origin of the, of the book project. It's, it came out of real conversation, real friendship, real encounter with work, with the artwork itself, from a place of faith. I was intrigued just with the visual metaphor last night when Cam introduced uh, the book that the, the, the Christians are gathered in worship at the church, and then uh, they would hear this uh, you know, sermon and, and worship and then go across the bridge uh, to look at art in the modern wing, and the perception of most people, perhaps, most Christians, perhaps, is what does the one have to do with the other? And how do you actually bridge from the church and, and the Christian faith over into the modern wing and say that they are of a piece, that they belong together in any way? So I wonder if you could comment a little more. Why are so many Christians historically and even today, shall we say, put off or suspicious of modern art? And you might even need to sketch what modern art sure. is. And why would you say modern art actually is a little more difficult to, to grasp and appreciate and relate to for anybody, but maybe especially Christians? Well, first, to respond to your question about um, why are Christians maybe uniquely put off by modern art, um, they have good reasons to be, frankly. Um, for over 125 years, artists uh, very self-consciously were deliberately challenging what they consider to be bourgeois values, including piety, including Christian piety. 
church-going, um, adherence to settled creeds. This was anathema to many late 19th century and early 20th century philosophers, artists, poets, um, the kind of uh, bohemian intelligentsia of France and Germany and England and even here in the United States. And further fueled by the two world wars exactly. and all of that disillusionment in the, early, in the 20th century. Exactly. And so that conscious attack on settled doctrine mm-hmm. and bourgeois values is part of what gave birth to modern art. As a, a mate in one of the figures in, um, actually the central protagonist in James Joyce's novel, Portrait of the Artist of, as a Young Man, Stephen Dedalus, memorably said, I want to awaken from the nightmare of history. Mm-hmm. And that idea of the break with tradition, and that tradition included Christianity, but also academic art, art that was part of the establishment. This began in Paris, and is sort of what became known as the tradition of scandal, mm-hmm. the, the Salon des Refusés, which was art exhibits that were deliberately held counter to the settled authorities of art, who had this annual Salon which was the celebrated artists of the day. And all those important and influential artists that were part of that settled salon have been forgotten. We don't even know what their names are. I mean, I could pull some of them out for you, sure. but they're, they're not important in the, in the narrative anyway that we currently have about modern art because all the names that we remember, people like Monet and Pizarro and Gauguin, Van Gogh, um, and then later Picasso and Matisse, and the list goes on. These are names, these are household names for people that are, are interested in art. And to a person, they thumbed their nose at the bourgeoisie and settled power structures, which included religion. So if when you go and see that art today, it, uh, are, are we still in that modern period? Does the, the, the things that gave impetus to, the, to that work and successive ways of that work over 100 plus years, you know, right into abstract expressionism in the, you know, mid 20th century and later. Is that, is that still feel relevant? Do people still look at modern art? It does. And, and also to respond to the other part of your question a few moments ago, you know, what is it that is difficult about modern art? Um, there, there are a bunch of layers to this onion, as it were, and you peel back one layer and you find more. Uh, one major layer in modern art that I think is difficult uh, for people that are more traditionally oriented, both in terms of their faith, but also in terms of their intellectual life, uh, is that modern artists, in particular visual artists, and that's what we're talking about here, visual artists around 1907, 1906, before the First World War, a decade before the First World War, a lot of modern artists had begun to dismantle completely, not just what the Impressionists and Van Gogh and, and Gauguin did, uh, but they actually dismantled the whole apparatus of visual art as a re- reportage, as the French call it, um, showing the way the world is. Making a three-dimensional illusion on a two-dimensional canvas was dismantled and thrown away. So the, the whole convention of illusionism, which we call realism, but actually ought to be called technically should be called illusionism, which is creating a, th- a 3D window, a magic window on a flat canvas that looks like a landscape or a portrait or something like that. Exactly. This was thrown out, and in, in its place was a kind of frank ag- acknowledgement of the flatness of the canvas. With Cubists uh, were a notable group that did this, but others, the Fauves, and then 
people like Vasily Kandinsky, the Russian artist, who wrote, by the way, on the spiritual and art, in which he equates color and shape and texture, the constituent elements of that flat art, which is just about you know, the, the celebration of visuality, the same way that music doesn't usually doesn't tell a story. It's just about sound and the beauty of, of intricate chordal structures and fugue structures and counterpoint structures and or whatnot. Music allows us to bring the story, the image to it. It's not right. given but to us. But it's more us. about it's... direct emotion that, right. is, that is communicated through sound. Um, not, you know, you have Peter and the Wolf and you have notable examples of narrative music, but they're the exception. If you listen to a Bach fugue, you can say, yes, this is about the passion of Christ. But it's not, um, unless it's got a recitative where you've got actual scripture being spoken and, and sung, more often than not in a, in a Bach fugue, it's about a lofty, inspired sense of, of the lifting up of the heart, the spirit, the imagination, the mind to God through sound. Well, a lot of these modern visual artists are trying to find a, a visual equivalent of a kind of pure art, a pure visual art that was no longer, a, you know, making reference to literary narratives or even to the visible world in the, in the sense of a picture of something, but rather it was about color itself. It was about texture itself. The celebration of, of, of a kind of distilled visuality, which is um, very exciting for artists. But for people who haven't been invited to that particular party and don't understand what the, the etiquette is or the rules are, it just seems totally inscrutable and kind of, frankly, unbelievable. If you're used to illusionism and thinking that that's, quote-unquote, realism, you look at abstract art and you go, what is that? What is that? And there's an intellectual component, component that's elusive if you're not trained in, in art. All right, so that is a nice uh, segue to the chapter that you contributed to the book, God in the Modern Wing. And you featured two artists whose work can be found in the Art Institute, uh, Philip Guston, Richard Diebenkorn. I'm curious why you chose those two artists and how they uh, fit into this uh, sketch you just gave us about modern art. Well, thanks. Yeah, actually, neither of these artists would be considered a household name outside of the circle of kind of contemporary intelligentsia. Uh, that is, the, our current day version of the folks that were trying to upset the apple cart 125 years ago, right? But among my circle of, you know, educated artists and art aficionados, they're huge names. Um, Gustin is now considered, he's got a kind of rising star right now, uh, almost 40 years after his death. Actually, it's more than 40 years after his death now, I just realized. Gustin is now currently considered one of the most important American artists who ever lived. And the critic just last week in the New York Times, Roberta Smith, one of the most influential critics uh, in, in America and probably in the world, said that this current show that's about to be launched, Gustin Now, will prove that 100 years from now, Gustin's work will still be celebrated and discussed, whereas many of his contemporaries will be forgotten. And this coming ex exhibition is going to be shared, right, between two locations? More than two. It's right. going to be at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, the Tate in London, uh, and the National Gallery in Washington. Major show. Major, major show. Okay, carry on. And then Richard Diebenkorn, uh, his, his star in that regard has not quite risen as yet, but it will, I believe. Uh, and, you know, who am I to say? I'm not a prophet of these things, but I... These are both artists who have deeply influenced me personally as an artist. One, because Gustin was my mentor. Uh, I worked with him for two years in graduate school. And then 
Diebenkorn uh, is an artist in a, in a very, very different um, emphasis in his work, almost opposite to Gustin. But for me personally has been uh, the two poles, the two poles for me that have constellated the energy at the heart of my own work as an artist. But I think for many artists, that's true as well, because Diebenkorn in many ways is the, um, his work signifies the perfection of abstract art, abstract painting. It's, it's at its zenith, as, as it were. It, it takes what, you know, earlier abstract artists like Kandinsky and then uh, maybe the American artists like Pollock and Rothko and Klein and some of these others. I don't know how many people listening to this podcast will recognize all those names. Maybe Jackson Pollock was at least one of them. They should probably get the book and learn a little bit. Well, yeah, uh, and they will learn. Um, Diebenkorn takes... He was a second-generation abstract artist, although he wasn't that much younger than them. But he was a West Coast artist. They were all they all gathered in New York. All the abstract expressionists were part of the Cedar Tavern gang. They called them. They gathered together, had these late-night conversations and fights over ideas. And um, Gustin was and Pollock were high school friends. They'd moved to New York within a year of each other. They were all part of that same group. Well, Diebenkorn never moved to New York. Well, he did briefly. He was in Woodstock for a time. But he mostly located himself in the Bay Area around San Francisco, and he was part of the Bay Area figurative group. And they held out with the human figure when when all the art theorists and a lot of the prominent artists were saying, we've moved beyond reference to you know, the human body and landscape and still life and portrait and all that stuff. We're now just, it's about pure painting. And Diebenkorn and Bischoff and David Park and some of these other, and James Weeks, who was another mentor of mine, was part of that Bay Area figurative group. They, they continue to paint the human figure, but in an abstracted and kind of distilled way. And those figurative paintings started morphing for Diebenkorn into color fields and kind of architectonic shape relationships that became perfected in his late work, which was the Ocean Park series, uh, one of which is in, in the uh, Art Institute of Chicago, which I wrote about in my, in my chapter in the book. But Diebenkorn's work is universally respected and loved among artists and among most serious art historians and critics. It hasn't penetrated down to pop, a popular level yet, but I think it will. So it's a shame that in a podcast we can't show visual images to people, but really it's not hard these days to Google those artists, see their work, contrast their work, and actually go to your website and look at your work, and you can see the kinds of influences um, on you. In your chapter, I was intrigued by your putting those two artists side by side, not just East Coast and West Coast and uh, a kind of the New York abstract expressionist school and what the West Coast did, but you you describe them in a, in a shorthand way, two ways that they, in their art making, kind of faced the world. In, in contrasting ways that may be aligned with a certain uh, spiritual way of looking at the world, which we can come to. But can you kind of sketch how you would say those two artists faced the world and made art? Yeah, thanks. I, well, I, you know, the easiest way to describe this is um, it, it, it goes back to actually a Christian contribution to our understanding of reality and the world and the cosmos. And that is, there is a a life-affirming, or a via positiva and a via negativa. Um, one is about presence, the other is about absence, both of which we experience. One is a, is a kind of a beatific vision, which is the vision of the beautiful and the, the, uh, the harmonious, and then the miserific vision, the vision of darkness and pain and suffering and catastrophe and 
human inhumanity of man to man. Um, and these are both pathways of, of contemplation where you can think the, the apophatic and the cataphatic, the apophatic being um, the, the kind of dwelling on the absence of God or the apparent experience of the absence of God and the cataphatic being the experience of the presence of God. Um, I believe Diebenkorn uh, was essentially having fought in World War II, came out of it when he came home, he wanted to say what's good about life. Because he had seen the worst. He had seen the, the worst. He had seen the worst. Right. Um, and he latched on to some of the, the kind of celebratory aspects of Henri Matisse's work, who was a colorist, the colorist in many ways in the 20th century, and a, one of the sources for people like Mark Rothko and other color field artists. Um, all those artists who celebrate color w- will acknowledge a debt to Henri Matisse, and Diebenkorn was very upfront about that. But he wanted to say yes to life. Gustin, who did not fight in the war, hmm. uh, stayed back. Um, nevertheless, was at war within himself in many ways. And reading Kafka and Sartre and dealing with the, the sort of existential dread that actually still plagues us. And those wars were kind of, a, kind of in many ways, you could say, Gustin might say, here's the proof if you want to know how barbarous human beings can be. Just take a look at World War I. Just take a look at World War II. Just take a look at Vietnam. And just take a look at the streets of Chicago, of New York, of L.A. Look at the, the assassination of Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King. Look at the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. The list goes on. Charles Manson, you know, he, he, that's what Gustin would say is, you can affirm life all you like, but t- tell the truth. As a Christian, I, I, I feel those two poles, those two perspectives, I think, over the even more over the last year, 18 months, I think we've become more aware of the brokenness of the world in our own country, the polarization, the division, the fracturing, the suspicion. We faced our mortality. Um, we're increasingly aware of climate change and its ominous implications for our future generations and and the, the racial unrest and r- revealing of all of the ways our history is fractured and unjust. And so we've we've been faced with brokenness, which can lead to, on the maybe in a good way, lament. Philip Gustin invites you to lament when you look at some of his work, particularly later work, or at the worst, despair. Right? At least lament, but but even despair. You know, where will hope come from? So then, how do you? Try to be life-affirming. I think a lot of us, maybe this year, have actually rediscovered the importance of love and embodied community and uh, looked for uh, grace uh, in the midst of all this loss and unsettledness. So these two dimensions that you're describing, I think they play out right in, in a kind of how do we face the world as Christians as well. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, one of the things I would—and uh, this is, again— on a podcast, which is purely audio, you can't really show images. But I would, I would say to people who might be want to chase, might be wanting to chase down, you know, Gustin's work and Diebenkorn's work, that you really cannot encounter their work in the pages of a book, no matter how, or even well, on a screen, image. or on a screen, no matter how faithful the color corrections are that that the designers have done, you need to stand in front of their work, and this is what you will find with Gustin. And I found this when I saw 
I'm getting chills saying this because I remember, um, you know, I had worked with Gustin for two years. I had seen a handful of his work, but I'd never seen a large amount of his work. And I went after he died, the year he died, I went, it was the, the occasion of his retrospective. He, he, st- he was alive for his first iteration out at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, but he died before the show uh, toured to, to the Whitney Museum in New York. He died that year of his retrospective. And I didn't get out to San Francisco. I got down to the Whitney um, about, you know, a year later. And I walked through the show all by myself. I did not go with friends because I knew I wanted to see Phil's work. Oh, I mean, it's impossible to communicate the, the level of life-affirming beauty and sensuousness and just gripping love that was in that paint, despite the fact that the images were full of darkness and, 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 and depravity and man's inhumanity to man. And, but the paintings were gorgeous. They just were overwhelmingly gorgeous. And so you had to say, this man gave himself away. He gave everything he had in that act of making those paintings. Just amazing. And one of the responders to your talk last night, Leah Samuelson, you know, uh, asserted that art can change things. Maybe it's the most powerful way that things can change because it it speaks to more than just your ideas in your head. It speaks to you in a visual, visceral way, an emotional way, an intellectual way, a a powerful way. I find that when I learn about artists like these, by acquainting myself, you know, just to read their Google page and look at some of their work, then when I visit a museum, you're going to find some examples of their work in any major museum. And I have a context then to to, to see it and to read it and to encounter it. Even how you talk right now um, illustrates something powerful that can happen to us, even spiritually. Going back to, can you gain anything spiritually by sitting in front of a painting in the, in the modern wing and to develop a way of seeing, which is, you know, how you develop appreciation for any uh, aspect of life or any kind of art or music, then it can open up to you and speak in powerful ways. Last night, Bruce, you used the phrase in your talk, an invitation to us to let our guard down, maybe so that we can have encounters like that. Um, can you say more about how, what that means? How do we do that? Yeah, I mean, the, the point that I was trying to make in my talk is that there's a kind of intellectual or artistic or cultural hospitality that we need to cultivate. It's the artistic and cultural equivalent of the scripture verse that everyone's heard, you know, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because in so doing, some have entertained angels unawares. And of course, that refers in the book of Hebrews, it refers back to the, the meeting between Abraham and the three mysterious visitors at the Oaks of Memory. And, you know, he hastened to feed them and put, he had his wife, Sarah, you know, bake cakes, little cakes for them. And, and then at the end of that story, Abraham asks, you know, their name. And suddenly mystery descends on the story and they say, it's enough for you to know that you have entertained the Lord. I mean, basically. So, you know, in the Orthodox tradition, that's understood as a kind of pre-incarnational visit of, of Christ 
the Logos, but also the Father and, and the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is maybe prefigured in that those strangers that Abraham entertained. That's what that verse refers to. But I think there's a cultural equivalent that Christians, if we let down our guard, if we invite the stranger, the person who we don't know, and we don't know if they're safe, we don't know if they're going to harm us or change us or you know, maybe not be polite at our table. We don't know what their manners are like, but if they're a true stranger and we've invited them in to our table, and I'm using this metaphorically and literally, sure. and literally, if you let down your guard to a work of art and you invite that stranger into your place of being, your intimate place of being, you might be changed by it. You may, in fact, be entertaining the presence of God. And, and so my point in, in my chapter of the book, and I think the whole point of the book, is to say, this is a God-haunted part of the museum, 20th century and contemporary art, modern art, because it's not overt. You don't see pictures of Jesus, although you might see, like, for example, in the, in the case of the White Crucifixion by Mark Chagall, which is in the Art Institute of Chicago, an overt religious image. But most of the time, you will not see overt religious imagery in the work of these artists. And you certainly won't see it in Diebenkorn, and you certainly won't see it in Gustin. But I would argue that if you let down your guard, if you are receptive, you will encounter truth and beauty. And if you encounter truth and beauty, you're not far from the Holy Trinity. Goodness, truth, and beauty, the, the transcendent, the, the three transcendent realities which are embedded in the being of God. We, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the truth. We also know uh, that he says God is God alone is good. So goodness is anchored in God. Beauty is anchored in God. So um, you need to let down your guard and trust God that if 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 the if this art is dangerous, it might be dangerous for a good reason. Mm. It might move you to a place of recognition of your own racism, for example, or your own, you know, gender prejudices or whatever whatever the thing is that you that you need to confront right now in our current cultural moment. How can artists who are not self-consciously persons of faith of any kind, much less followers of Christ, make work that can do that spiritual, that God can use, as it were, or be present to us through their work? How, how does that happen? I'll tell you a couple of stories here. One that I think is just really amusing, but also really telling, and that is J.R. Tolkien who wrote Lord of the Rings, which has been translated almost in the I've heard of him. Bible. Yeah. I mean, uh, this story has gripped people in so many different cultural traditions. Like I said, it's been translated in almost as many languages as the Bible. He was interviewed once uh, by a, a, a journalist who said, you know, Mr. Tolkien, Dr. Tolkien, uh, where did you get the idea for this? How did you write this story, Lord of the Rings? And he answered, well, I had gotten... Frodo and Sam out of the Shire, they were on their way, and they, they made their way to Bree, this, the little town of Bree, and they were supposed to meet Gandalf there, and Gandalf didn't show up. And I couldn't figure out why. I had to write the story to find out. I think this is a universal experience of artists. We are servants of the work. We, we find out what we're supposed to paint, what we're supposed to write, by doing it. Um, so it, there's something bigger than... I'll just speak personally here. There's something bigger than me that's coming through my work, and I know that. Augustine, who was not a Christian, uh, he was a secular Jew, I guess what most people would say. I mean, he wasn't a practicing Jew. 
he changed his name from Goldstein to Gustin because of, you know, one, he, he no longer identified with the Jewish tradition, but also, you know, because in, in his day, anti-Semitism was a very big deal. It was all everywhere, the kind of prejudice. And not fully gone today. Right, exactly. Um, but Gustin tells a story. Here's my second story for you to answer your question. Um, he says, this is what painting is. You go into your studio, you've got your work apron on, you're squeezing out your paints and your brushes, and you're going to start to work. And everybody's in the studio with you, all the critics and, and all the art historians and Picasso's over in the corner kind of looking skeptical. And Rembrandt's, you know, starting to fall asleep. And one by one, they all get bored and they leave. And then when you leave, a hand stays behind painting. That's what painting is. Of course, what he's, what he's referring to there in that clever way, is it, he's saying that the, the experience of making art, genuine art, I'm not talking about you know, preconceived notional stuff, but the real thing, the experience of, of, of a really true artist is that, that you don't even know where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. Right. So someone like Gustin could be, he could be a medium through which the Holy Spirit decides to address racism. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And that's part of the reason that his, the Gustin Now exhibit, this big retrospective, which is about to launch, was shut down for a year because people were fearful. The, the museum directors were fearful they were going to get blowback in our currently really charged atmosphere in the Black Lives Matter movement. And they were afraid. But then there was a hue and cry, and, and 200 prominent artists from around the world signed a letter sent to those museum directors saying, how dare you? shut down this show. And among them were a lot of black artists who know Gustin's work. And they, they knew that this was not racist work. They're, they're, it could not be construed that way. And they were saying to the museum directors, don't you dare do the interpreting of Philip Gustin's work for us. We get to look at it ourselves. And of course, what they did then, they did a they, they were putting it off. They said maybe in 2024, they suddenly got religion, and now it's happening this coming year. In May, it's going to open in Boston, 2022. I, I, so sidebar comment, we're having a lot of trouble throughout the, the society and in the church having the conversation around race and history and structural racism. And we're having—it's it, so, as you say, it's so loaded— it's so easy to say the wrong thing. It's so easy for our intentions to not match up with the actual impact of our ways of thinking or talking. And so we're so tempted to just opt out of the conversation. We just It's too volatile. It's going to blow up. It's going to be divisive. Let's not go there. My goodness, if, if the museum can be shaken to their senses to have the courage to lean into the conversation in the art world. Shame on us in the Christian community if we can't lean in and have the conversation. That's a side path we may not want to go down. But. The, the one thing I will say, and again, uh, because you're not looking at Gus's work as I'm saying this, you can't see us, but, you can, but the audience can look this up. Um, during that period of his late work, uh, the last 10 to 20 years of his work, Gustin began to do these, he returned from going back towards figuration, towards narrative in his work as an abstract artist who had been part of the ferment called abstract expressionism. He was asked, you know, why did you do this? Why did you start 
in reintroducing the human figure and, and story into your work when that had all been expunged from painting by the most advanced artists of the 20th century, including yourself. And his answer was, I, I, th- I said, what kind of a man am I? Reading magazines and watching the news and getting all worked up and then going out to my studio and adjusting a red to a blue. I could not picture myself doing that for the rest of my life while people were dying in Vietnam and people being assassinated and there, was, there were riots in the streets. I, I, I wanted to tell stories again. And, um, yeah, I think... Ah, you're, I mean, your comment just a moment ago about why are Christians not on the forefront asking these hard questions? Um, Gustin got to the point where he was willing to own his own kind of unconscious racism. His complicity. <clears throat> his complicity as a white male of high status. And I, I'm finding myself wanting to do the same thing now. And I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's painful and difficult. But if we don't do this, if we don't confess, there is no, there's no way to make it to that, that next step, which is repentance. Where, and, and what repentance is, is turning around. And if we don't turn around, we are heading over the cliff. I agree. When you were talking a moment ago, I was thinking just a couple of uh, maybe oblique scriptural reference points, but Paul in his public address um, in Athens acknowledged how the art of that culture spoke uh, to spiritual reality. You have a you have a sculpture to an unknown God, even your poets. So there is this way in which God can use the culture to speak to us. How does this play out in your own art making, especially these days? How are you, how are you facing the world in your art? I figured it out recently. I've, I've been uh, pursuing painting in a disciplined, professional way for a half a century now. So I'm almost 69 years old. Um, I started painting in a really disciplined, serious, professional way when I was 18, um, that's when I, you know, began the formal study of art. But I, you know, I've been, since I was six years old, I knew I was going to be an artist and always said that to my dad when he asked me, you know, one too many times, what are you going to do when you grow up? And dad, you know, the answer. To his great delight, right? Well, he was, you know, he was a good dad. He, he tried to sort of steer me towards commercial art because he thought at least then he wouldn't have to support me the rest of my life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, so I've been, I've been practicing as an artist for a half a century, which seems like a long time when you say that, but I, I still feel like I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I'm finding it out as I do it. So I'm at the current work body of work I've got in my studio, and I've got probably, I work on anywhere from a half a dozen to a dozen paintings at the same time. I never, I don't work on one painting and then finish it and then move on to the next. I know artists who do that, but that's never been my way. I've always worked on many things at once. And part of the reason I do that is I'm trying to understand, like, like Tolkien said, I'd gotten the hobbits to Bree, but Gandalf never showed up. So I had to write the story to find out why. I have to work on multiple paintings to find out what it is that the paintings are meant to be. Um, and, and, you know, I don't sit down and, you know, work everything out in advance and then just execute a painting. I find out in the process of painting. And sometimes I have to wipe out not just one painting, but whole, whole groups of paintings. Just literally paint them out. Or scrape them off and start again. Although palimpsests or little residue or layers of, of what was underneath continue to 
be visible, partly visible. And that's part of how I work. I work with these layers, layers and layers of imagery, texture, abstract elements of formal elements like color, texture, shape relationships, etc. but also images. Because I, for me, the tension between the abstract so-called pure painting on the one hand and images on the other is a, is a fruitful and really dynamic and really interesting and engaging process to try to keep that contest at a high level between the image on the one hand and the formal means on the other. Uh, and that, I mean, I didn't get that from Gustin, but that certainly was affirmed by my time with Gustin. I've always felt, before I ever met Gustin, I, I wanted, that was after that. Part of the reason I ended up working with him is because I saw that he was trying to do the same thing. And he was much further along than me, obviously. And that was now more than 40 years ago. But my current body of work, I've got nothing but questions about. I'm not even sure I could articulate what it is that's going on in there. I can describe it for you. That's about it. Because um, I'm still finding out what it's supposed to be. But, but, but think about this for a minute. Imagine having a life and a life work where you get to, at the age of 70, feel like you're just starting out. I mean, honestly, I'm not saying that... D- there's not, not even a shred of disingenuousness in what I just said. That's how I feel in the studio. I feel like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a beginner. All right, I'm going to read a quotation that was an epigraph in uh, a book th- that featured a, a, an extended conversation about your body of work with Walter Hansen, who was the co-editor of God in the Modern Wing with Cam Anderson. And the book's called Through Your Eyes. Through Your Eyes. Through Your Eyes. And, and so one of the epigraph is from T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets. And I'll just read a few lines. I believe you can actually quote them from memory. Old men ought to be explorers. Here or there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion through the dark cold and the empty desolation the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrol and the porpoise, in my end is my beginning. That seems to echo what you just said about being at 69 and still trying to figure it out. Why do you, why do you like that passage? Oh my gosh. Don't get me started. Yes, I know. This we'll is have dangerous. To have another series of podcasts. Okay. <laughs> Um, four quartets was, I was introduced to four quartets by Philip Gustin when I was about 21, 22 years old. So I'm, you know, I've been reading this poem, uh, for almost a half a century. And T.S. Eliot was a modernist on the literary side. Oh yeah. And and actually worked with C.S. Lewis on the, 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 the prayer book, the Psalter, I should say. Eliot's, uh, this is Eliot's Magnum opus is his piece de résistance. It's his sort of summum bonum of his, of his work. And after Four Quartets, he stopped writing poetry. I mean, he, had, he wrote The Wasteland. He wrote the you know, Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, Ash Wednesday, The Journey of the Magi. I mean, any number of great, great literary masterpieces before he wrote Four Quartets. After that, he wrote no poetry. He wrote a few plays. He did a few... Uh, more lightweight things, but he had said he had said what he had to say in Four Quartets. It's his. It's also his Christian testimony, right? But it's it's incredibly complex and layered, and it's 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 um to to it it's inexhaustible because 
he had such an f- amazing encyclopedic grasp of the Western canon of great poetry and fiction and myth and, and religious uh, writing. And it, it's all there. His entire library is laid bare in four quartets. So that particular quote is in the context uh, the, of the, the poems are all stitched together. There are four of them. So, and, and they're, they, they have this deep resonance with the four seasons and the four seasons of life. And there's this mysterious fifth, the quintessence, which in the medieval mind, it was earth, air, fire, and water were the four elements that constituted the entire cosmos. But those four elements were held together by the mysterious fifth element, the quintessence. And you'll notice in Eliot's poems, there are four poems in four quartets, but each one of them has five sections. In the fifth section of the fourth poem, the final poem, uh, Little Gidding, Eliot says this, and I'm reciting this from memory, so I may not get every word right, but he, it, it goes like this. With the voice of this calling, with the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration, and all the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So there you are with the old men being explorers, arriving where they started and knowing it for the first time. And it goes, he goes on. Through the unknown remembered gate. When the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now, always a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less and everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flame are enfolded in the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. I mean, even if you don't understand what all that is being said there, is the musicality, the language is thrilling. But I want to just go back for a second to that phrase, a condition of complete simplicity costing a lot less than everything. This is where, this is the heart of every composer, poet, painter, choreographer, any artist, what they're aiming for is that great unity, that, that where things come together, where the complexity and the mess and the, the incoherence somehow fuses into this great unified simplicity. And then you can say, I'm done. And, and you know, people ask me, and I'm sure other artists get asked this all the time, when do you know you're finished? on a given piece. And, and my answer is really simple. It sounds disingenuous, but it's when I can't do anything more to it. Or to make one more mark would be to undo the whole thing because it is, it's arrived at that, that point of that costly simplicity. There's so many words that come to mind. That, you know, there, in, in, in that writing and in the art that we've been talking about, there is a kind of quest for transcendence, or, 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 or an imminent presence, truth, beauty, love. And that, that is what the Christian life is. It, it is a journeying ever deeper into those things, ever closer to God and all that's promised, knowing we will fall short. We always fall short, hence the need for confession and lament and humility 
but we're questing towards that. We're pilgrims towards that, towards God, which is our true home, right? And in which God promises that he will make all things right. All manner of things will be renewed and redeemed and the beatific vision becomes our home, to quote you earlier. So that that animates your life, even with all of its suffering and grief and loss that you've experienced. We've all experienced it some in this last year, but you've experienced that in your own life. Yeah, I think in this last couple of years with the COVID uh, pandemic and then this other pandemic, uh, which is this divisive social situation we're all in, we all are acquainted with grief. Um, but if we are if we can catch a glimpse of what Eliot is referring to there in that last stanza of Four Quartets, where the fire and the rose are one, the fire, the refining fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the rose, the multifoliate rose in medieval imagery is a symbol of the church. So this is really the union of God and, and his bride, the bridegroom and the bride. And, and um, you know, Eliot, in an earlier poem, before his conversion to Christianity, wrote in Prufrock at the very end, he said, this is how the world ends. This is how the world ends. Not in a bang, but a whimper. But Eliot would say, the Eliot who wrote Four Quartets, the mature Eliot would say, the world ends neither in a bang nor a whimper, but in a wedding feast. So in this broken world and in these broken bodies and persons that we are, how do we how do we access that hope? How do we access that hope? I feel like we're in a, a time where we're all a little shaken when it comes to hope. Um, have you been thinking at all about hope? Oh, I think about it incessantly. And, and what I was saying a little bit earlier in our conversation about standing in the presence of one of Phil Gustin's paintings and not just seeing the image in a reproduced in a book or on a screen, you might see a dark image, but you, what you see in front of you is, is a dark image it's, that's been painted with love and total self-abandon. Um, the paint itself is a carrier of that love, is a carrier. It's, a, it's a, manif- a physical manifestation of a kind of selfless giving of oneself away, spending of oneself entirely for the sake of, in his case, truth-telling uh, to a society which is, you know, is careening towards, towards its own destruction. Well, it's to care, right? I mean, the temptation is to give in to despair or to just escape it all in pleasure and a distraction. But to care is costly. To care is painful. And, that generosity, and to sustain that care, we have yeah, to have some hope. Absolutely. And, and what I was trying to say there is that I find hope when I listen to music or look at art or read poetry where the artist has given herself away, has basically said, this is worth it. This is worth it. And don't we also see it and experience when people give themselves to us with kindness or compassion or um, attention, you know, to love one another? That's the other place where I think my hope gets re-engendered over and over is to be loved. And also there's something life-giving about Extending love. I, I sat with a, a colleague and a friend yesterday morning who who's lost his wife at 66 a month ago. And it was a short conversation, 25 minutes, teary, because we're thinking about what matters in life, the people we love, 
the joy they bring, the beauty they embody in the world, um, community, and uh, really, we grieve because we love. Yeah, I mean, if if we have a a final note to sound here, brother, uh, for our listeners, I think it would be that, which is, we all we are given. I mean, it's like what Frodo says. I wish I'd never lived to see these times. And Gandalf says to him, "Well, don't we, we all? Don't we all? But we're not given to control that when we we're born. But we are. What we are given is is uh, a choice as to how to use the time that's given to us. That's where I think genuine hope comes is when we can look to one another as brothers and sisters and say we can get through this because we have one another. And as we grieve, as we lose those who who love us and who whom we love." We still have sisters and brothers, and this is where the body of Christ becomes a reality. It's not about you know signing on the dotted line that I believe the right things, although I'm not saying right belief is not important. I'm just saying that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is the bond of love. It's the, um, the mystical unity of the body of Christ, which is it's that costly simplicity, which is love. Bruce, thank you for this conversation. It's good to end on a note of that invitation to hope and to love. Um, Yes, to see the beauty in the world and explore towards it, but not close our eyes to the brokenness uh, as exemplified in the artist that you write about in the book, God in the Modern Wing. And I think a lot, we're both about the same age, I think a lot about the, the, the generation that are in college now, the Gen Z coming, and so much of our hopes rest on them exploring right on into their 70s, as it were, and making our world better. May it be so. May it be so. Thank you. Thank you. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.